You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we'll start our time today. I want to give a special welcome to all of our visitors today. I know we've got a lot of family and friends in the house who are here to support both Madison and Addison, who are going to be getting baptized later today. So a special welcome to you. We're excited to have you uh, as a part of our worship service this morning, um, and know that your presence is certainly a blessing to us, and uh, we're excited for the work that God's been doing in both Addison and Madison's hearts and lives, and uh, we're excited to see what the Lord has in store for them uh, going forward as followers of Him, too. Um, Acts chapter 6 is where we'll start today. We just recently completed a lengthy study in the book of Exodus, um, and we're going to be moving into a study of the book of Acts. Now, we're starting in Acts chapter 6 today because we're not actually starting our study in Acts. It just helps kick off where we're going to be over the next several weeks. I felt like on a day when uh, folks, uh, we, had, we had a lot, a large amount of people this morning who gathered even before we started to be a part of our membership class. We've got four or five families that are uh, in the process of joining our church. We were able to hear from Jonah, who's just recently spent time on the mission field. Um, we've got others who are being baptized today. And then as we just prayed over the Zarlingas, we've got a family that's leaving as well. I felt like it was appropriate for us to really focus on uh, the gospel and what we believe here at Sovereign Hope. Um, what is it that we are proclaiming on the mission field? What is it that we are depicting through the act of baptism? What is it that unites us, even if we're not worshiping together in this location, if we're worshiping around the world in new locations? What is it that unites us together? Uh, And we see that in the gospel, and so we're going to look at that today. Um, We'll probably jump into the book of Acts uh, in the next several weeks. As I was looking at the timing of everything, I did realize that Um, All of my Acts commentaries are in storage right now, so that does delay a little bit getting into the study of Acts. So we're in a process of moving, and all of my books are packed up. I kept all the Exodus books out. Thought for sure we would be in a new place by now. Um, We will be by the end of February, so probably for the next six weeks, we're going to just use this intermediate time to kind of refocus ourselves on some of the things that we believe here at Sovereign Hope Um, With so many people coming and joining over the past several years, I thought it would be a good way to uh, just clarify some of the things that we believe here so that we can be on the same page um, as we serve together in this community. Uh, So Acts chapter 6, where we're going to be today, and I want to read a lengthy passage to you because it does tie in with where we've been in Exodus and where we're headed now into the book of Acts. And it starts in verse 8, and this is where uh, Stephen uh, is serving faithfully, and, and where the story ends with him becoming the first recorded martyr in Scripture. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Right? So the, the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people at that time are furious with Stephen because he's proclaiming Jesus. He's proclaiming Jesus as the, the next step of understanding God's plan. And so they're trying to, they're trying to put an end to that, right? And so they, they instigate these people to try to create a case against him that he's speaking blasphemy. And in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who, he, who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. 
and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship, the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slay beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Skip down to verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. What's this passage about? What's happening here? Well, it's Stephen recounting the history of Israel, right? The history of Israel that these same religious leaders who were trying to persecute him would agree to, right? He goes back all the way to Abraham and says, remember our father Abraham. Remember the story of God calling him out and calling him to a promised land. Remember his faithfulness to Abraham and his descendants. Remember how he cared for Jacob and Jacob's sons during that famine time. Remember how he cared for Joseph in his own bondage to Egypt. Remember how he allowed the people to thrive in Egypt, even though they were in slavery, and they grew in great number. Remember how God raised up Moses in the midst of a genocide protected him, preserved him so that he could be the leader of this people. Remember how God revealed himself to Moses and how Moses led the people out of Egypt in this great exodus. Remember how God was faithful to communicate covenant love, even in the midst of idolatrous sin. He says, remember our history and remember how historically we have always failed to see the prophets working in the power of God and how we've rejected them He says, now, that's what we're doing today. If you fail to see Jesus as this next fulfillment of God's story, you're guilty of what the fathers were guilty of. 
not seeing God working and moving amongst these prophets. The people fail to respond as they should, and they kill Stephen. They stone him. They refuse to see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan. And they kill Stephen for proclaiming this truth. Saul oversees this. Saul verifies it being good. Now we know the story of Saul. We know that later in Acts, he too is converted. He, he has an experience with the resurrected Jesus. It's ironic that Saul is here killing Stephen, overseeing the death of Stephen. And it's in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, where Paul himself proclaims, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the gospel that we hold to here at Sovereign Hope. It's the gospel that says Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. That God has this great story in mind of how he is going to reconcile creation back to him. And Jesus is the the crucial element of that plan. Our summary sentence for today, Sovereign Hope holds to a gospel foundation of worshiping Jesus as the fulfillment of God's saving story. A story that invites us to come in faith to receive his eternal grace and mercy and calls us to spread joy and contentment in him. For our kids, the gospel is the story of Jesus doing all that is necessary to save us from our sin. The book of Acts here is declaring that the story of old is now having a new chapter written. With this longed-for hero, this promised prophet that Moses alluded to now being fully revealed. The gospel is a message that a holy God desires to save sinful man through the perfect work of Jesus Christ for all eternity. This message starts in Genesis and it runs all the way to Revelation with the story unfolding in more glorious detail throughout each book of the Bible. The gospel literally means good news. Understanding this good news of the Bible is to understand what history is all about, where we've been, where we're going, and how you can be included in God's glorious plan to reconcile all of creation back to himself. It's the good news. The good news that a just and gracious God, a God that we've been learning about in Exodus, who reveals himself as one who who can't just let sin happen and not let it go unpunished, right? But also a God who reveals himself as being gracious and merciful and forgiving, who works for the salvation of his people. It's the good news that this just and gracious God of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to attain righteousness on our behalf to bear God's wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. To simplify that, it's the the revelation of who God is, who we are, and how we can be reconciled to him. One of the things that we've echoed throughout the years here at Sovereign Hope is the definition of the gospel being God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his own glory forever. This is the story of the Bible, and this is where Stephen picks up in his sermon. He's kind of in the middle of it. He recounts some of the highlights of the story up to this point, right? This is how God's been working amongst his people. And hear how he has chosen to work now. Jesus, his son, has been sent to make the gospel effective in our lives. Romans 3 talks about how 
prior to Jesus coming, God was in uh, kind of overlooking mode. He's overlooking the sins of people happening in the Old Testament, waiting for his son Jesus to come and bear that wrath on the cross. Stephen is saying, hey, we're in the middle of this story right here. Jesus has shown up. He's the hero we've been longing for. You can either reject him or accept him and follow him. We continue to see the story unfolding through the book of Acts, through the early church history, through the church history we're in today, looking towards the glorious truths of Revelation where Jesus comes again to rule and to reign forever. I want to spend just a few moments today as we get ready to celebrate baptism here at our church by helping to explain to you some of the key components of the gospel that we hold to here at Sovereign Hope, key truths that that ground us in an understanding of what it means to be saved, what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. Number one, we believe that Jesus is God's promised plan to reconcile all of creation with a special focus on mankind back to himself. We don't have a gospel without Jesus. We don't have good news without Jesus, right? Jesus is the truth that we hang all of our lives upon. He is the promised plan of God, a plan to reconcile all of creation. Think back with me to the book of Genesis where everything uh, goes awry. When, When Adam and Eve sin, creation is broken. We see this truth throughout scripture. Creation is broken. As sin enters into the world, death enters into the world as well, right? And creation is no longer as it was first created. That, that creation that God describes is very good at the culmination of Adam and Eve, man and woman being created. The very good creation has now become broken. It's become tainted. <clears throat> and it's from that point on that, that we see practically how God plans to fix the brokenness. Now, we know from Scripture that it was prior to the sin that, that the lamb was slain, right? The book, of, the, book of, the book of Revelation talks about the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, right? It was always God's plan to send Jesus to be the savior of the world. But from that point of brokenness, Adam and Eve's sin, all the way through the end of Revelation, we see practically God playing out this plan of salvation. And it starts in that garden where we see Jesus being needed. He was needed in a garden, When Adam and Eve fall, we call this the depravity of man, that man falls into sin and he becomes becomes broken and he becomes separated from God. Creation becomes broken and and it needs to be fixed. Romans 8 talks about God or creation groaning for God to make things right. Not just sinful humans wanting to be made right, but all of creation longing for a day when everything's fixed, when everything's restored. This curse carries over, not just from Adam and Eve and their, and their descendants, or, or their immediate descendants, but all descendants coming from Adam and Eve are now cursed with this sin. And Genesis 3.15 is that first hint of the gospel. As Adam and Eve are brought before God, they know the consequences. They were warned that to eat of this tree would result in death. And so they're there to accept their punishment, I believe that Adam and Eve were probably there expecting for their existence to end that day. And it's there as God is talking to Satan first that he describes hope. He describes good news. It says in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's hope that's communicated here, hope that Adam and Eve aren't going to be killed that day. 
hope that Adam and Eve are going to be able to produce offspring. Hope that eventually one of their offspring is going to be victorious. That he's going to be a better Adam. He's going to be an Adam who doesn't fall to the temptations of Satan. He's going to be an Adam who finds victory over Satan, who crushes the head of the serpent. As we move forward in the story, he was pictured in a tabernacle, right? We've seen that in our study in Exodus. Jesus pictured in the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle, this tent of meeting, is God's presence coming to be with his people. Sinful people who don't deserve God's presence, God is choosing to commune with his people. And the sacrifices that are built into that tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the lambs and the goats that will be slaughtered there, they point us to hope, hope of a greater lamb who would come to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He's needed in the garden. He's pictured in the tabernacle. He's realized in a manger. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 tells us when the fullness of time had come, when the perfect time came, Jesus was sent in human form. When we say realized in a manger, we, we mean something very theologically important. That being that Jesus, God, took on human flesh. He didn't appear to be human. He didn't materialize as a human as though he was a hologram. He truly took on flesh and blood. Hebrews tells us it's so important that we see our great high priest can sympathize with us. He's gone through all the things that we go through, and he went through it victoriously. He's effective on the cross. His perfect sacrifice makes salvation apart from works possible. Romans chapter 3. We'll look at the passage that I alluded to earlier. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul builds this case in Romans where there's really no hope for human beings to be justified before God because he shows how every single human being is sinful. Every single human being falls short of the glory of God. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All who believe, there's no distinction. Verse 24, they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27 reminds us that we can't boast about our salvation because we haven't worked for it. It says, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, we will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, his perfect life that makes him a viable sacrifice that makes salvation possible for us. We don't have to work our way to heaven. Jesus has done that for us. He's victorious at the tomb. He's conquered our great enemy, which is death. I think one of my favorite scenes in the book of, or, 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 the, or the, any book of the Bible, sorry, any book of the Bible, one of my favorite scenes is in Revelation chapter one. 
as John begins to hear from God to write this last book of the Bible, he describes to us what he has heard. Verse 7 of chapter 1, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Then he quotes God. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. But who is it that's speaking these truths to to John? Who is it that's talking to him? Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Right? John's like terrified of this image that he sees of God, this picture of God in human form, glorious human form. He falls down dead, and what, what, is, what does this figure say to him? Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus that we worship. This this glorious, fearful figure who reaches out to us and tells us we don't have to fear him. We don't have to be afraid because he's died and he's alive forevermore and he holds the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to the things that would be most scary. And he says, I control these things. I've found victory over these things. He was coronated at his ascension. The opening scene of Hebrews gives a glimpse into the moment that Jesus arrived back in heaven after his resurrection. He's crowned. He's given a name above every other name, a name that every knee will bow to, every tongue will confess to. The author of Hebrews says in verse 1 of chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For our kids maybe particularly our, our, our girls. You guys have seen the movie Frozen, right? Where Elsa has that coronation day. Remember where there's all this excitement where Anna or Anna is like uh, so excited about coronation day. Why? Because the kingdom's open, the doors are open and everybody's excited about Elsa becoming the king of the, of the king of, or queen of the kingdom, right? She's gonna get her crown. She's gonna become the ruler of the kingdom. This is Jesus's coronation day. This is Jesus. Think about the excitement in heaven as Jesus comes back to heaven after being on earth for 30 plus years. He has suffered. He has died. He's rose again and he's ushered back into heaven. And, and, he, and he's sitting down at the right hand of his father and he's commissioned to rule and to reign forever. It's a glorious day. And we get this picture in Hebrews. He, this, is, this is he who has the keys to death in Hades. Lastly, he's expected at his return. 
We wait for his day. It makes the gospel urgent. It makes our response to following Jesus urgent because he's coming again. It's not optional for us to decide whether we believe in Jesus or not. As Stephen would tell the people at that time, we have to do something with Jesus. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's coming. He's coming back. Titus 2 tells us that we purify ourselves if we're waiting for him. 1 John chapter 3 says we, we seek to live holy lives as we wait for Jesus to return. What do we believe here at Sovereign Hope? We believe that Jesus is God's promised plan to reconcile all of creation with a special focus on mankind back to himself. Number two, we believe the gospel maximizes God's gracious and merciful provision and minimizes man's insufficient works. This, this grand plan for Jesus to be the savior of the world, how do we become a part of that? How do we get in on that? Well, the gospel communicates to us that it's about God's grace and mercy and not about our worthiness. We don't get to work ourselves into his salvation. I put in my notes, God's goodness, which we've highlighted so much in Exodus, God even says, hey, you wanna know me? Here's how you know me, I'm good. God's goodness <coughs> realized through his covenant saving love, it's motivated by grace and mercy. Grace and mercy that are just a part of who he is, his inherent qualities. He is just a gracious, merciful God. He doesn't become gracious and merciful by our good works, meaning he's not aroused to be gracious and merciful because he finds worthiness in us, right? Like we don't get to come before God and say, God, be merciful and gracious to me because look what I've done. That's how we sometimes approach grace and mercy though, right? Like we appeal to people to be gracious and merciful by giving them all the reasons why they should be towards us. I and mean, I get this all the time from parents at Trinity who will like, try to uh, either include me in on an email to a teacher or maybe even bypass the teacher and say, hey, we're reaching out trying to get some grace and mercy about this assignment or this situation, and here's why you should be gracious or merciful to us. Like, my kid's been doing this, or my kid's been doing that, or my kid has demonstrated this. Right? It's not like a true appeal for grace or mercy. Like you're, you're making an argument that really it's deserved. Like your child deserves this because of all these things that they've done. Now be gracious and merciful to us. We approach salvation like that sometimes. We think that if we can do enough, well, then God has to be gracious and merciful to us because we've earned it. That's not what grace and mercy is. Grace and mercy comes from a God who is simply gracious and merciful. Remember, it's, it's the sinful, idolatrous, uh, golden calf worshiping Israelites that God says, I'm gracious and merciful to you. Like, like you don't deserve it. You can't send me an email saying, hey, be gracious and merciful because you, you have nothing to put in the content of that email to justify my grace and mercy and yet I'm going to be gracious and merciful to you. The gospel promises that we can be freed from sin, from judgment based on the work of Christ, not our own good works. Acts chapter 13 and I'm excited to see all these passages in Acts in their, their further context of this book. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. They're proclaiming here that that Jesus makes it possible to be freed from sin when you could never be freed from sin by trying to keep God's law. You will always fall short of his glory. The gospel requires that we come on the grounds of believing faith, which means we trust in what we've been told about Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You know, I had the privilege of meeting with both uh, Maddie and Addison over the last week to talk about their testimony, to talk about what it is that God's been doing in their heart, right? Why do they want to be baptized? What's their salvation story? You know what we never talked about? We never talked about uh, whether they've been good or not recently. We We didn't talk about, hey, give me a list of things that you've done for God so that I can see if you check the boxes so that I can declare to you that you've been saved, so that I can then baptize you. We just talked about Jesus. We talked about what Jesus has done for them. We talked about their understanding of what Jesus has done for them, because that's what the gospel is. It's that we don't come with our good works. It's that we come running to Jesus, who's gracious and who's merciful. When we talk about conversion, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about a willing response to the gospel where we repent of our sins and we place our trust in Christ for salvation, a turning from sin and a turning to Christ. Repentance is not being sorry that you got caught. It's not going a specific amount of time without sinning again. I never talked to to Maddie or Addison and saying like, hey, if if we're gonna baptize you, you gotta promise to never sin again now that you're a Christian. We talked about how, hey, you've experienced forgiveness and you're gonna have to keep coming back to Jesus for forgiveness because you're gonna keep messing up. And Jesus is the foundation of your salvation, not your performance. Repentance is an internal change of mind concerning the promises of sin. No longer is sin viewed as the means to an abundant life, but instead abandoning all to follow Christ is now seen as the only way to life. I was so encouraged, and, and, and Maddie's going to give you some of her testimony today. I was so encouraged listening to her to talk about her, her experience at, at camp, summer camp last summer, and, and the work that God was doing in her life, and the work that he's continued to do in her life since this past summer. I told her, I said, Maddie, like, you're an example of the gospel working because so many people dismiss salvation experiences at camp because typically when you come back from camp, you go right back to doing what you wanted to do. You go back to living the way that you wanted to live. What you're telling me is that months have passed now since your camp experience, and you're still desiring to follow Jesus. That's a testimony of the Holy Spirit working in her. It's a testimony of true salvation taking place in her. She's no longer at peace with her sin. She's committed to battling it. When we talk about faith, we're talking about a reliance or a trust in the things that God has revealed to us that he's promised to forgive sins. He's promised to give us Jesus's perfection. That means that acts such as baptism 
partaking of the Lord's Supper, attending church, reading the Bible, they're never presented as acts for salvation, but instead acts of salvation. Right? I was real clear in our baptism discussions, like, hey, this doesn't save you. This simply pictures your salvation that's already happened. Right? You're not getting saved on Sunday when we baptize you. You're telling everybody that you're already saved. You're telling everybody that Jesus has already washed you clean. And now we're picturing it so that people who don't know the gospel can see it in visual form. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our good works always come after salvation. We're saved to now work. We're saved to now work. They're done because one is truly saved with a true desire to see salvation have its full effect in one's life. Number three, we believe that perseverance in the faith is both required and promised, making salvation both absolutely secure with God and necessarily evident to others. What does that mean? It's a fancy way of saying we believe you can't lose your salvation. We believe the Bible promises that. Now, there's a lot of people who get nervous when you talk about the security of the believer. People struggle sometimes with this idea because they fear that it allows for somebody to claim the name of Jesus and then live however they want. So sometimes people will say like, well, that's just not possible, so that person must have lost their salvation. We too would say, hey, that's not possible. You can't have somebody who claims to follow Jesus and not follow Jesus. Right? The Bible doesn't allow for it. We would say what I believe the Bible teaches is that person was never saved. Not that they lost their salvation, but that they were never saved. God's work of salvation, according to Scripture, has a guaranteed end of conforming all believers to the image of his son. Philippians 1.6 says what? If he starts a good work in somebody, he finishes the good work. If he starts a work of salvation, he finishes that work of salvation. Man, after talking with both uh, Maddie and Addison and, and, their, and their parents, I'm fully, I'm fully convinced that these two are saved. I'm fully convinced they've given their life to Jesus. And I'm fully convinced that he started a work that he will finish in both of them. And it doesn't, it doesn't hinge on how faithful they can be. It hinges on how faithful he is. It hinges on how faithful he is. Romans 8, 28 and 29 is another passage that helps us to see that when he starts something, he finishes it. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for whom those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's a promise there that he starts the salvation and he finishes it. He conforms them to the image of his son. Now, 1 John 3, 9 through 10 tells us we can't, we can't be believers and live however we want to. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 5, uh, verse 18 of 1 John says something similar. 
We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So you've got a guarantee here in Scripture that God starts salvation, he always finishes it, but you've also got a guarantee that part of that process is always making believers more and more like Jesus now. That he doesn't just let people come to him for grace and mercy and then keep living however they want to live. He changes them. He necessarily changes them, which means perseverance, staying a Christian, like staying true to the faith. It's required for salvation, but he fulfills all the necessary requirements for that. He keeps the promise of getting us to the very end. We're absolutely secure with God. He will absolutely make sure that our salvation is evident to others. How does he do that? Well, he does it by, by keeping us in the faith, by warning us. Look what Hebrews chapter three says. Hebrews chapter three, God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish in us by warning us. Look what it says in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, hey, if you're a Christian, make sure you've got people in your life that are constantly encouraging you to stay in the faith. Like, do this or else you might fall away. He says, you need people in your life to keep you faithful. But look what he goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Lest we become discouraged about how faithful we can really be, Look what he says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I long to see you on that day when Jesus returns still being faithful. And then he follows it up with this last statement. And he says, and I know you will be. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If he started the work in you, he'll definitely finish it. He's the faithful one. He's the one that our salvation completely hinges on. If he's faithful, then we have assurance that we too will be faithful. Lastly, number four. There it is. We believe that embracing the call to proclaim the supremacy of God to the world while modeling joy and contentment in him is our greatest mission. There's a call on us as Christians now to tell everybody about how great God is. And one of the ways that we do that is we model joy and contentment in our circumstances. That's our great mission. That's our great mission. It's the mission here at Sovereign Hope, our mission statement. Sovereign Hope is a body of believers who've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ and are committed to spreading joy and contentment in him as we learn to hold fast to the hope of his second coming together. That's what we want to be about here at Sovereign Hope. We're clinging to this truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. He is our salvation. He's done everything to save us. He'll do everything to keep us saved. And we're going to keep meeting together about it. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a body of believers here. And we're a people that have committed to meeting together, encouraging one another, stirring each other up to good works so that we don't fall away, so that we don't get deceived by sin. 
And we keep doing it. We keep doing it. We keep doing it, especially as we see the day coming closer and closer where Jesus returns. Our fulfillment of the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 28 is to grow as disciples and to focus on pulling others into our growth plan too, right? Like we want to keep growing in our knowledge of God, keep growing in our understanding of joy and contentment in him, and then, and then grabbing other people and bringing them into that too. Like come learn with me as I learn about Jesus. Come learn with me as I grow and mature in my faith towards Christ. This is what we believe. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we hold to and cling to here at Sovereign Hope, a gospel that's all about Jesus. It's all about God's grace and mercy. It has nothing to do with our, our ability to be good because we can't be. It has everything to do with God's faithfulness because we're going to be unfaithful at times. But we get to keep coming back to him because he's faithful. And we want to embrace a mission that we tell everybody about that. We just keep telling people about how great God is and how great his mercy is and how great his grace is. We want to be joyous and content in him because of it. Our application for today. Number one, be examining yourselves regularly to make sure you indeed hold to this gospel and have responded in faith. The great thing about being here at this church is that you can believe a lot of things differently from each other, right? We can believe differently about how the whole world comes to an end and the timing of that and some of the events that take place. We can, we can, we can disagree about a lot of things. We can't disagree about the gospel, right? We can't disagree about the gospel. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 challenges us to make sure that we believe this truth about Jesus. It says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Number two, be committed to taking every precaution necessary to keep yourself in the faith while also believing he will hold you fast. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest you fall away. We ought to be committed to taking every precaution necessary to keeping ourselves in the faith. And then lastly, number three, be intentional. Should you ever depart from here to align yourself with a faith community who holds to these same truths. Part of our membership process is to give guidance on what happens if you ever decide to leave Sovereign Hope. One of my least favorite things, I love college football. One of my least favorite things about college football right now is the transfer portal. Because as a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs, I hate seeing some of my favorite players transfer to our, to our arch rivals. Just part of college football now. I think one of the hardest parts about being a pastor is watching people hit the transfer portal too. Right? It's, it's hard to see people leave. It's hard to see people go. But here's where it's different than college football, right? Where it's different is that we remain part of the same team, right? Like we're still part of the same kingdom. We're still part of the same mission. So even as we have times where we say goodbye to people, like the Zarlingas who are leaving us, they're, they're, they're entering the transfer portal. They're going to go to a new church, a new community, but they're still on the same team, Right? We're not playing against them. We're still playing with them, right? And Lord willing, that will always be the case for people who leave our church. As long as we take care not to fall away, as long as we make sure that we align ourselves with churches who, who hold to the same gospel, right? And, and, and that's, my, that's my final appeal to you, Dale, is to continue to lead your family to a church that aligns with this same gospel, right? That, that can hold you fast, hold you fast until the, until the day of Jesus comes right? And I have great faith that he will, right? He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. May we all have that type of mindset that we, we fight to examine ourselves to be in the faith, 
that we remain committed to doing all we can to be faithful to the one who will hold us faithful, and that if we ever depart from, from this church, that we will align ourselves with another church who will do the exact same thing, preach the gospel faithfully that we can cling to until Jesus comes. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you, and we thank you that you sent Jesus Because, God, we don't deserve your grace and mercy. We could send the most articulated email to you, begging you to show mercy to us because of all the good things we've attempted to do. And that email response would be, no, I can't do it. You haven't been good enough. God, we recognize that. We know that today, that, that, that your grace and mercy is completely based on the fact that you are grace and mercy that you are good, and you've chosen to love us, even though we're not worthy of it. You've chosen to accept us, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has. So God, help us to be unlike the people that Stephen spoke to. God, help us to cling to Jesus. Help us to run to Jesus. God, if there's anybody in here today who has been rejecting Jesus, may they be like Saul who became Paul, who denounced the gospel, who persecuted the gospel, who killed the gospel, who years later would say, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, including one who was anti-God, anti-Jesus. God, we thank you that Paul serves as an example that anyone can be saved people here that need to be saved, that you'd save them today. God, I thank you for, for Madison and Addison and the salvation that you've worked in their hearts. God, I thank you that we can put that salvation on display today through baptism. God, I pray that through that act of baptism, through that proclamation of them telling their friends and their family and their church that they love you, that you would draw others to love you as well. God, keep us faithful to you. God, we thank you that our assurance is based on your faithfulness. And God, we do continue to pray for the Zarlingas as they leave us. God, help them to acclimate quickly with their new church. God, I pray that you would hold them fast until Jesus comes so that on that great day, we can unite together once again and worship you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A couple things that Adam mentioned. He said, Jesus is the fulfillment, crucial element of God's plan, that the gospel is the revelation of who God is, who we are, and how we can enjoy relationship with him. That it's God's plan to save man from his sin through Jesus Christ for his glory forever. And coming out of Exodus where we were reminded of the law, it's in Christ that the law and the gospel find perfect harmony together. That the gospel is how a holy, righteous God can maintain his holiness and righteousness while also being merciful and gracious and allowing filthy sinners like us to enjoy relationship with him. So the law and gospel find that harmony, that unity together in Christ. The gospel is how God can require righteousness and holiness. And the very thing that he require be the exact thing that he provides in Christ given for us the righteousness and holiness that is necessary to enjoy relationship with him, that he provides it for us. That's the gospel. That is the good news that makes anything in life good news for us to be able to enjoy.
because of what Christ has done. And so a great reminder for us today to root us back, to bring us back um, to what's at the center of what we believe and uh, thankful to be able to celebrate that today through baptism. We are going to change things up a little bit differently here today. I wanted to read to you from uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism doesn't save us. Today for Madison and Addison, this is just an act of obedience because they love Jesus and they want to follow him. Baptism is that outward picture of an inward change that's already taken place to the glory of God. And so as we watch uh, Addison and Madison, be reminded that it's not about them, but that it's about Jesus. We're celebrating and rejoicing and worshiping what Jesus has made possible in the, in the lives of these two young ladies. And so from the, the, the youngest of saints to those who are the oldest and just ready for Jesus to take them home. This is what we celebrate here today. So for our kiddos, you might ask, that I understand those things, but why will they be in a big tub of water? Why will we be putting them under water? What does that mean? Well, the passage that I just read talked about how the death of Christ, that we're baptized into that death with him, that they're going to be lowered into the water as if they're being buried. Their old, self-loving lives that were me-centered and all about me, and I just want what I want for me. That version of their life is being buried underwater in the ground, that they're being buried in a death with Jesus. But They're being raised to new life, a Jesus-loving, Jesus-following, Jesus-centered life. That newness of life is what they're being raised to now here today. And so instead of us literally putting them in the ground under dirt, which wouldn't be good for them, we're going to put them in water because that's the example that we're given all the way back from when Jesus was alive and they would baptize people in the river. So I'm going to pray for us and then give you some instructions on how to head out for the baptisms. Lord, we're so grateful for this reminder this morning and uh, just the opportunity to worship you together as a body of believers, even with all of the visitors that we have here, just in unity together under the same banner of Christ. Father, we are so grateful for the, the goodness of the gospel and for the plan that you put into action on our behalf, recognizing our need and in love, sending Christ to be the righteous gift for us that we were in desperate need for, even when we didn't even recognize it or know it. So thank you for that reminder, Lord. We're honored today to be able to worship you through the baptism of of fellow believers. And uh, we're just so grateful for that reminder today and the newness of life that you've allowed for all of those who've trusted on you. So pray that you'd be honored through the rest of our time together. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. 
For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.